Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Pastor Larry Davis. All right. Well, I'm glad you're here with us. Uh, my name is Larry. I'm one of the pastors here. We are finishing uh, this series that we've been doing on Revelation. This is the week three. Um, it's been really tough for us to just um, try to make three weeks out of this book. It's pretty simple, but we've really bled it out, I feel like, so... <laughs> Hopefully, you don't feel like I'm too redundant uh, today. Um, uh, no, it's been fun. We've taken kind of a, a, a higher view of this, and really the goal has been to um, rescue Revelation um, and uh, see that it's really a book of beauty, not a book to be feared, and often that we find that that's our motivator. And uh, the first week... Um, did a lot of historical background, did some cultural background to understand um, what reading this book is like, and we talked a lot about how we look at it literally and that we misinterpret a lot of what apocalyptic literature is really all about, which um, is defined as unve- unveiling or to, to see anew. Uh, also, the word revelation is, is similar to have a new revelation in that we often connect apocalypse or apocalyptic things with devastation and destruction, and that's not how this literature, this ancient literature was written. And so we looked at um, uh, how you can look at it like a Picasso painting and that you wouldn't take it literal, but, but you understand the totality of the impact and the imagery and the beauty of it when you look at it in that way and understand it that way that we shouldn't be taking these things literal. And last week, Jesse continued that theme um, as we talked about not taking this literal um, and understanding that it's not this timeline roadmap that it's, and then this happens and then this happens and this happens but yet the things that John saw and the way he explained it. And Jesse dove into some of the specific topics that a lot of people really enjoy or are interested in understanding, um, some different numbers um, and what they represent and that they are representative and that culture of quite a few different things that makes complete sense for the readers at that time. But often we have to understand um, who they were and uh, what they thought about those things for it to make sense. He talked about the 144,000. He gave some background with that. He gave some background with like um, the mark of the beast that was a bit interesting for a lot of people and to understand um, that this isn't a roadmap. And today, um, we're going to talk about some more of those things and how it can be difficult oftentimes um, when we treat this book not as it was to be treated. Uh, some of you have been watching the video on the screen, the introduction video, and have found yourself really frustrated because you are positive that we've spelt the word judgment incorrectly and that it's not spelled with an E, but this is a perfect example of the book of Revelation. Both spellings are correct if you've looked it up, but often we get this misunderstanding or we've learned or thought that this is the only way uh, and we've taken it so literal that we miss the whole point, so we start judging the word judge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's a perfect example of what this looks like. When it comes to understanding um, a language, um, especially and specifically uh, in this book, Revelation, the most difficult thing to do if you've ever had to learn another language is learn and understand their idioms. Um, it makes no sense uh, to most people learning a new language. That's the most difficult part to understand. I can make this really clear with you. I've won. You've heard this is a common one, the idiom, it's raining cats and dogs, right? Someone coming here learning this language, they would be looking at you like you're literally cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs <laughs> when you're like, man, it's just coming down. It's raining cats and dogs. What are you talking about? 
I do not see cats and dogs coming down. Or feeling really under the gun. Like you are, there's no gun point at your head. I don't understand why you would say that. Um, under the weather, how does that even happen? How do you get under it? Um, the cost an arm and a leg. Think about if you went to another culture and you're like, did you just say that cost an arm and a leg? They're like, yeah, it does. And you're like, I... I don't understand. It's very frustrating when we take these things literal. Barking up the wrong tree. I don't see many people bark, and not many people are up a tree when that conversation is taking place. Burning the midnight oil. I'm not sure which oil you started with, but I'm glad you're ending with the midnight one. And thunder. How do you even get that? That sounds awesome. Uh, It sounds horrible that someone steal it. Like you finally figured out how to get some thunder. Someone stole it from you. I heard it straight from the horse's mouth. I don't even have, I don't have anything to say about that one. <laughs> Hearing it on the grapevine, you've drank too much wine. To, has to be, oh, there's George listening again. <laughs> Just popped my head. So that's the toughest thing to understand about uh, a language and a culture. And we find this um, connecting um, specifically to uh, literature that we see in Genesis, that we see in Daniel, Isaiah, uh, which is all imagery and apocalyptic literature all throughout the Bible. And what happens is the problem um, when we read revelations like this is we end up taking literally what they meant figuratively. Oftentimes, we get really frustrated because we take literally what they meant figuratively. And it's important to assess the things that we're reading and the things that we're diving into if it is meant um, literally or to be meant figuratively. Um, and so that's continually the theme of uh, this book. Um, I wanted to dive into a couple other topics specifically only because it's been brought up to me a handful of times. People are really worried about this or um, some people have watched the movie. Some people have done some reading. In the 1970s, a guy named Hal Lindsey wrote a book and this became a really big uh, thing that happened. They imagined... But a person would be standing there and suddenly, oh, where'd they go? The rapture happened and you would be left behind. So I want to talk to you critically just about the rapture just for a moment and maybe even dispel some of these thoughts uh, and just understanding theologically where this came from um, and how, why people are connecting this to the book of Revelation and what it actually means for us. Um, in that you have to be worried if you're driving passenger and someone's suddenly going to disappear at any given moment, and <laughs> you better know how to drive. How That's just scary. That's just freaky. But anyways, uh, primarily this thought comes from 1 Thessalonians. It's a, a book that a guy named Paul wrote. Um, it was one of his early b- books. He wrote most of the New Testament. Jesus didn't write it, just by the way. Um, And uh, in Thessalonians, Paul is talking to this group of people, this culture that has lost a lot of their church members and people are dying and they're saying, hey, like, what about what happens when you die? Or these people have died in Jesus's name because of what they believe in, what's going to happen to them. And I want to make sure that they're okay. So it says, for the Lord himself, with a cry and command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet. This is imagery, again, like you've thought of when kings or queens enter into a room or you've seen presidential things all over the world. Usually they enter to the sound of a trumpet that was very common. So this was, again, giving the idea of God as king. He's coming with a trumpet. will descend from heaven and the dead will rise first. Continues in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, 
will be caught up in the clouds. Caught up is where they get this word rapture. Caught up also means to seize or to take. uh, And it's a Latin word that they've decided to use there. uh, In the clouds, together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. I want you to understand that um, this is not a new idea. This is a common image that people use to talk about the glory of God. This isn't something that is necessarily meant as a literal thing that will take place. It's a figurative thing. You see this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In Psalms, the Psalmist David uh, wrote as well, he parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind, and he made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. The dark rains, the clouds of sky. So David is explaining the glory of God, and now he's uh, mentioning that he, he mounted and he flew, and then he soared on the wings of the wind. What are the wings of the wind? I don't even know what that looks like. He made darkness his covering so in his canopy around him. So wait, I can see him. He's coming down in the cloud, but now I can't because it's just clouds all around. I can't see him. And uh, he came down from the sky. This same type of imagery is the same type of imagery that we see here that Paul is using. And it's a consistent thing, that Im- the imagery that even we use sometimes to explain the glory of God. Have you gone in an airplane and flown up and you've seen these giant, beautiful clouds and lightning from a distance and you're just like, whoa. That is so much bigger than me. How beautiful and glory this is. That isn't new. Um, That has been around since he made the earth. uh, And people have used those types of things. The glory, the the, um, beauty, the the majestic scenes like this to explain God and who he is. Um, He uh, also, um, a lot of people also get the word rapture, this idea of the rapture taking place um, from Jesus' words as well, not just Paul. Um, And so I'm going to continue to kind of just critically think about this. Um, And it parallels in Matthew. In Luke first, we see, uh, I tell you, this is Jesus talking. um, On the night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There'll be two women grinding a meal together. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, uh, what we do oftentimes is we read something like that and we put it in our own context because that's how we want it to read and it should look. But critically, let's look at it and understand the context in which it lives. So this is actually a parallel. There's one in Mark 2, just so you can see. It's not just in one place. But this is the before of what Jesus just said. He said, For the days of Noah were, for as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of the Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Basically, they were doing life, but they saw Noah, and Noah was telling them, this is about to go down, I'm building a big boat, and they said, you're crazy, we're fine, ain't nothing going to happen. And so they acted like nothing was going to happen, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now to what he actually was saying in context, continues, then two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding a meal together, one will be taken, and one will be left. Uh, I think, is there there one more verse? No. Um, So two will be taken, one will be left. So this is what what he's talking about of the person who's taking is not the lucky one. (laughs) The one who's left behind is the one who's 
the one, like hanging out there. There was also uh, much talk um, then, especially when um, Paul was writing and some of the other books in Revelation, is the Roman Empire was really asserting their dominance and authority at that time. And uh, it was much like the Holocaust of this uh, more recent era. Um, there's uh, literature that actually explains at times there was over 4,000 Jews that were killed um, at times just in a mass killing. Similarly, they would go around and they would collect people from the homes and just pluck them, like what you saw there, just to say, don't mess with us, don't rise up against us for no other reason other than to assert their dominance. And so he's saying, hey, this is all going to go down, this is all going to take place. But what Jesus himself said is that no one knows the day or the hour in which these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son himself, only the Father knows. He also said that we shouldn't believe anyone who claims to be the Messiah or anyone who claims to know when he's coming again. And we get caught up in that. We hear somebody on the radio, this coming, oh my gosh, this is the day it's going to happen. He's saying you shouldn't believe anyone is going to say that. It's been happening. It will continue to happen. No one knows except for the Father. The important thing is this, not to know when or how the end there it is, will come, but to be spiritually prepared for it when it does. That's the important thing. We don't need to know when or how the end will, will uh, happen and how it's going to go down, but we are to be spiritually prepared for it, including helping other people be spiritually prepared for this. That's what this is all about. This is, it's happening soon, it's taking place now. We're to live like this now, to be passionate Jesus followers now, not when this goes down. Jesus said himself in uh, Mark 13, but about the day or the hour, nobody knows this whole roadmap idea. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home. He puts slaves in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or at the cock crow or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, all keep awake. He also says in Thessalonians, the chapter right after we talked about what was used for this rapture idea, he says, for you yourselves are fully aware of the day the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Um, If a thief is coming in the night, you usually don't have a checklist or a timeline of when it's happening. You're not going to look at the calendar and say, well, it's February 28th. It's time to lock the doors. (laughs) All the things have taken place. He is ready and prepared to enter my home and to take my things. The same thing Jesus and Paul is saying through Jesus. While people are saying, there's peace and security where I'm at, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. In Matthew, oh, but you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day will surprise you like a thief. Meaning, you're not in the darkness, you know who God is. You're good to go. You make sure you got Jesus. No worries. Don't worry about the next day. In fact, he actually talked about specifically worry in Matthew. He said, but first, strive for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what you need to worry about. 
Make sure you're seeking who God is, being right in relationship with him, being right with your brothers and sisters, loving and taking care of them. And all the things will be given to you as well. Not to worry. So, I would never say this, but I'll tell you that he said it a lot because I have to remember it all the time. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. (laughs) That's so crazy. (laughs) Have you ever told your wife not to worry? (laughs) It does not go well. <laughs> Have you ever told yourself not to worry? Uh, it doesn't go well because culture and your singleness and your and your late years and your schooling in uh, your job culture constantly tells you to do what worry goodness. So Jesus is telling you the impossible. Right? Don't worry about tomorrow. Today's troubles enough for today. So why on earth? Would Jesus constantly tell us, nobody knows what's happening, no one knows when it's happening, and then go up and decide, man, they are really struggling. Those people are processors, they need a schedule, and I messed up. I need to give a revelation to John so they got a timeline, so they know what's coming and won't be spooked. It's crazy. Why would Jesus constantly say this from the words of the, the, the words from his own mouth? And then suddenly, we'll throw all of that out because we'll look at the book of Revelation and say, well, John got it right. It's crazy. It's bloody. But it's right. Nope. Think about that. So, uh, there's the rapture. There's the end. Good luck. I think that's all I got. No, let's go ahead and get to... uh, Let's get to the end part because that's where we're all interested. What happens at the end? Let's, let's take a quick peek at it. Revelation 29, right at the end of the book. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Uh, a lot of people think there's literally going to be a new earth and a new heaven. It's not true. Um, the Bible is really clear about uh, it that it's going to be burned up and it's going to be refined. When you put things in the fire, you refine them, you purify them, you clean them. Just as we will be purified and clean because when God made the earth, he said that it was good. If you didn't know, he said that. When he made people, he said it was very, he said it was very good. He's not going to destroy that either, but he's going to purify it and clean it and make it all new again. And then people look at that and go, well, there's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. And the sea was no more. Well, there's not even going to be an ocean. Some of us would say, well, that's kind of ridiculous. The ocean's beautiful. Some of my best spiritual moments are at the ocean or looking out in the sea. This is, again, one of those things that we take literally rather than figuratively. Let me explain to you what the Old Testament and New Testament imagery was explaining about the sea. God uses this, and Jesus uses this a lot through their speaking, that the sea represents destruction, turmoil, um, fear, injustice, the things of this world that splash and create chaos in our lives. You see God saving his people by splitting the sea, giving them an exit from the chaos of slavery, of freeing them from Egypt and the destruction and the, and the power that was over them. You see Jesus rebuking the sea, the wind and the waves, the calming down that, that brought up fear in the people. You see Peter walking on water, and he noticed the wind and the waves of the sea, and it began to sink. And Jesus said, hey, you did it. 
You're hanging in there. You got back in the boat, and the sea was calm. The sea, what it's representing is that when this new earth and new heaven comes, when it's purified, when it's made to be just as it was in the beginning, good, and you, very good, there'll be no more sea, meaning there'll be no more chaos in your life. There'll be no more hurt and pain and injustice and craziness, the things that splash up and nail you in the face and just take your life over that make your life feel like a rocky mess. Figuratively, that's what that's talking about. Not literally, there's no ocean in what happens to the whales. That's not what this is talking about. He continues on and he says, see, the home of God is among the mortals, just as it was in the beginning in Genesis. He will dwell with them. That's us. They will be his people. We're his people. And God himself will be with him, with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and no pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. There'll be no more sea. He continues. And and the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this. For these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you thirst for this. I'm going to give you water from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and it will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Remember that whole refining and purifying thing? We got a choice. We got a choice. You can be made new, or you can continue to do the things that you do and want to do. And that's literally what's happening through this book of Revelation. Jesus is saying, look at me, I am God, I'm glory, I'm yours, I'm fighting for you, I'm fighting for you, I'm fighting for you, and then you choose. He says, at the end of the day, do you want to be made new, or you just want to do what you do, and you choose? And this is your choice. It's up to you. And so uh, we ask, well, how does God rule, and how does God win in this, the end of this big story? It's really simple, but it's really beautiful. He rules and wins by self-sacrificial love. Self-sacrificial love. He says in Revelation 22, right at the end of the book, See, I'm coming soon. He's here now. He's there. He was before. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who wash their robes. You choose to wash your robe. He's not just going to do it for you. You make a big boy, a big girl decision to say, I need to be made new. I'm going to offer, I'm going to wash my robe so I, so I will have the right to the tree of life. I may enter the city by the gates. But if you choose not to because you have a choice and God gave you that will to choose, it says, outside, 
the dogs and the sorcerers and the fornicators and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves the practices of falsehood. Those things are cool. Those things are fun for a lot of people. We get mixed up in them, but we have to choose. We have a choice. He has already chosen. He has given a sacrificial, loving gift to you and to me. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. He's making you new. He's making me new. He's making all of us new. This book is beautiful. Our response to this book should be worship and nothing else because he's the conqueror, the overcomer. He's God. And he's a God you want to worship to be made new in. This is an opportunity for you to respond and some of you just need to respond in understanding the urgency. This isn't a a book for back then. This isn't a book for in the future. This is for now. That we may be urgent because we don't know if this is going to happen today or tomorrow or 5,000 years from now. But it's called to inspire us to live as followers of Jesus now. And our response should also not be because of fear, but because of his glory. It should inspire worship. So for some of us, it's just truly worshiping the God, the creator, the overcomer, the victor, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. Some of your response today in this room might be a revelation in its own. It might be to be made new for the first time. It might be to accept the sacrificial, the love sacrifice that's been given for you. And that would be Jesus. You've done nothing to deserve it. But you came here today He's been seeking after your heart. He's been seeking you and seeking you and chasing you. Today, maybe your response is to surrender that, to be made new, to be made alive again, to make a choice. And the choice is yours. So if you're here today and your response needs to be that, to accept Jesus for the first time, to be made new in him, for the first time, not only with your heart, but would you do it physically while everyone's heads bowed? And would you raise your hand and let me look at you and pray for you and celebrate with you? Just respond to him by your hand. You're gonna have to raise it high because people are tall in here and I can see hands kind of peeking up around heads. I see you over there. Yeah, that's awesome. Back there, I see a couple of you. That's great. That's awesome. Way in the back, I think. Yeah, God, that's good. God, would you celebrate with us right now just as things have been made new, people have made made new. Would you just break their chains? And may our response just be to fall at your feet. We love you. We praise you continually. In the name we pray, amen. 
Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. You may-